study. It's good to see you tonight. Glad you're here, Marie. Wow. All the way from Washington, D.C. Great to see you tonight. Layla, all the way from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. More specifically, Merle's Inlet, South Carolina, all the way to Syracuse, New York. Good to see you. Eric, always good to see you, right from Westcott Street here. Yes. Always. Always good to see you, man. All right. <laughs> Let's start our time in prayer, and uh, we'll just ask the Lord's blessing on it. Father, thanks for uh, meeting with us tonight, and thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. I just pray that our ears would be wide open to receive what you want to say tonight, and our hearts would be open, our minds would be open, that God would be ready to glean what you are bringing forth and to take it as our own. So, Father, I ask you that uh, your word would be clear. I pray that your word would be simple to our hearts, simple to our minds, simple to our spirits, and I pray, Father, that we would receive all that you have. I ask you, God, for change. I ask you, God, to change that our minds could be changed tonight, that our hearts could be changed. I pray, God, we'd be drawn closer to you. Be glorified. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Just as a quick reminder, uh, the funeral service for Tammy is tomorrow at 11 a.m. at Piro Funeral Home. It's right off of Buckley Road. And uh, if you need the address, I can give that to you uh, after the meeting tonight. Uh, but 11 a.m. is when that's taking place. So, Numbers chapter 35, if you'll turn there. Numbers 35. If you need a Bible, you can grab one off the table. We have them available for use, and you're more than welcome to grab one and use it. In fact, you can even take it home with you if you'd like. We obtain Bibles to give away, so you can take it and have it. Numbers chapter 35. As you're turning there, just a quick reminder that we do have an interactive feature with Bible study for our podcast listeners. It's through a website at www.speakpipe.com slash Monday Night Bible Study. Squish that down to all one word, Monday Night Bible Study. You go to that website, you go to that web page, what you will find there is a button that you can toggle and leave us a voicemail. Uh, that gets sent directly to me, and I will play that uh, during the meeting. It could be a question, comment, it could be something good that God's done, it could be uh, something that you heard during Bible study that inspired, it could be just saying hello, it could be just letting us know that you're listening to us and from where you're from. Uh, we get our statistics every month. People listen to the podcast from all over the world, and we'd love to hear from you. If you're so inclined to contact us via SpeakPipe, we'd love to hear from you. 
Numbers chapter 35, verse 34. If I get a volunteer to read that. Okay, thanks for reading that. You can read the context of it uh, a little bit before, a little bit after, give you some context to the verse. And uh, as you read the context of it, I'll be touching on that as I'm going through the Bible study. But the idea here, uh, and some of your Bibles actually say this, is do not make the land unclean. And interestingly, that that this, this verse and verses like it were interpreted by the Israelites and used to exclude others. Uh, their idea was is that God must have been talking about all of the unclean people that would want to live there that didn't that weren't part of their community. And so what they did is they used this verse, they used this command, and they turned it into something that it wasn't. Because what it wasn't meant to be is something that would be exclusive. What it wasn't meant to be is something that would tell them to reject the presence of others. What it wasn't supposed to be was for them to justify their position at the expense of other people by judging them. So in other words, the way they used it was, that, oh, well, you're not an Israelite. You're not part of our faith structure, so you have no place in this land, so get out. And so by doing that, they were believing that somehow they were keeping this command. They believed they were somehow keeping this word. And you see this in different forms. Throughout not only the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but you see that even in the church today. How there are some groups that will exclude people because in the name of righteousness, in the name of purity, or whatever they want to call it. In the New Testament, there was a really tough time that the church went through when they were first starting. And part of the tough time that the church was going through had to do with whether people were Jewish to start with and then became believers in Jesus, or they were Gentiles to start with and became believers in Jesus. Because there were whole sections of the church, in fact, most of the church and most of the church leadership at the very, very beginning, believed that Gentiles were completely excluded from what God was doing through Jesus. They just believed that. They had been taught to believe that. They had been taught to believe that they were specifically the chosen people. They were taught specifically they were the ones of God's own choosing and God's own love and God's own mercy and God's own grace and all the rest of that kind of stuff, and that the Gentiles were literally to them dogs. And so at the very beginning, the gospel was preached to other Jewish people. And it was only other Jewish people that responded to the gospel that were baptized. It was only other Jewish people that, that responded to the gospel that were brought into the family of God. And then there came a day at the house of Cornelius where Peter had been called supernaturally through a vision and men had come to the house where he was staying, and he was led into the house of Cornelius. And he preached the gospel to the house of Cornelius. Now, these were all Gentiles. And even as he was preaching the gospel, I mean, God had to supernaturally intervene in that, had to send visions his way in order for him to even 
remotely believe or think that he could even go to that house to preach the gospel. That's how ingrained it was. That's how deep this went. And so supernaturally, he gets shaken in what he had been brought up to believe. Supernaturally, he gets shaken in what he had been taught to believe his whole life. And he responds to the Holy Spirit. He responds to the invitation that he receives by the Holy Spirit. And then through these men that came and got him, took him to the house in obedience, even though he still thought it was a bad idea. Follow me. Through obedience, he preaches the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel to this crowd of people, these Gentiles, these dogs, they began to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit fell on them like it did on the day of Pentecost on the apostles and disciples and the 120 that were in the upper room. The Holy Spirit fell on them. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues just like they had. And when he saw that, he realized, he said, who are we to deny water baptism? Who are we to deny entrance into the family of God? Who are we to stop this work that God is doing among the Gentiles? To bring them in to the family of God. And that was a turning point. And there were still people that resisted it. There were still people that that came against it. There were still people that were teaching against it and preaching against it. Even after that kind of a revelation. Even after after one of the leaders in the church said, no, this is what God is doing. They were still arguing about it. It was that ingrained. And so I want to encourage you that that, that this is not God. It never was. I mean, you can go back to the verse they used to start it all off. It ain't God, the way that it's being interpreted. The way that churches interpret it today. No. No. God never called us to, to you know, just shun everything else outside of these four walls. Ever. It doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense to do things like that. Oh, I only have Christian friends. What? That makes no sense. None of it. Oh, I don't talk to unbelievers. What? How is that even possible? I mean, you do talk to the guy at the store, right? I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? But I've been in churches like this where it's being taught. Where people are being taught. Well, you don't want to soil yourself. Soil yourself? Wow. Wow. I mean, I I, I can't even begin to fathom how anyone can live in such a delusion. We're saved by grace and mercy and love. I mean, there's nothing else that we, we can even call on. Nothing. Nothing. And how many years ago were we the people that were on the outside. Not too many. At least for most of us. Some of us, maybe longer than others, but, you know, God calls us to love. God calls us to, to, to pour our lives for people. God calls us to, to be a light and to be salt wherever we go and among the people that we're part of. The rest of that stuff doesn't matter. The rest of that stuff's a lie. And so going all the way back to the verse that so many have used to to kind of justify that behavior, that's not what this is talking about. Specifically, this verse is talking about murder. 
if you read the context of it, it's talking about taking somebody else's life. And in the context and surrounding verses of this, it talks about the cities of refuge. Anybody know what a city of refuge was? It's where you could run after uh, you accidentally killed somebody until the high priest died and then you were free. Yeah, well, what would happen would be, that's, that's almost uh, exactly right, but, but, not, but, but not quite. But it's almost. Yeah. Okay, so if you kill somebody, see, this is, the, this is the mix here. I want you to see a mix here. The cities of refuge provided a mix, and here's the mix, justice and mercy. It's a beautiful mix, right, because that's what the cities of refuge was about. And so what would happen was is that if you killed somebody, I'm not even trying to pass judgment on it. If you killed somebody, believe it at that, you could run to a city of refuge. And the cities of refuge, there were six of them, and all of them were less than a day's journey. Like, there would be a city of refuge within a day's journey from wherever you were in Israel. Right? That's how they were spaced out. So you could make it. You know, you got a day. Because what would happen would be, because what would happen would be, would be that you kill somebody, and then, and then there would be an avenger. Like the, not not like the not like the movies, okay. <laughs> sort of like it, but not exactly. The, the Avenger in this case would be like a family member, and and they would get upset because you killed a member of their family, and so it's probably the psycho uncle, who knows who the Avenger was, but somebody would take up the mantle as the Avenger, and then make it their business to hunt down you because you killed somebody in their family and kill you. More like the Punisher, right. So gonna, that was the idea. So they had to hunt you down. And that was, that's what they were going to do. So your choice was then at that point, either wait around and be hunted down by the Avenger or run to the city of refuge. And so what would happen in the city of refuge is once you got there, you would claim sanctuary. No, I don't know what you'd do, but you get to. Nah, I, made that, I made that part up. I made that part up. But you get to the city of refuge. And then you would let them know that you're seeking refuge, at, the, at least the city elders. And they would have a trial in the city of refuge. And the trial would be that people in that city, and they would determine if you were guilty or not of murder. If you were guilty of murder, then you would be punished accordingly. Like you couldn't get out of it that way. You can't just get out of murdering somebody by running to a city of refuge. The, the issue is, though, even if... You were found not guilty. Who's still waiting outside the gate? The Avenger, right? Because he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's still out for blood. Even if you were, you're not guilty. Okay, I didn't do it. I'm, you know, whatever. If the glove doesn't fit, you know, you must have quit. You get acquitted. Still, so you're, so the Avenger's still waiting out there. And this is the rest of the story that, that Patrick shared. So your choice then would be to live out. Uh, some days in the city of refuge until the high priest died. So once the high priest died, then all sins were forgiven, and that was the end of it for everybody. That's a dangerous job in the city of murderers. I mean, the, the, the Avenger is all done. The, the, everything's done. Everything's forgiven. The year the high priest died. And then that was it. And then you go on your life. So you choose the city with the youngest 
There's only one high priest. Yeah, he's the only one high priest. And normally the high priest was pretty old when he got elected high priest. So so you weren't really looking at a really long time, probably. So you just wait it out and that'd be it. Now, really weird quick story about this. I was uh, I was going through Buffalo. I was in Buffalo one time. I forget where it was, one of the outskirt towns around Buffalo. And there was a storefront church right off the road. And as we're going by it, I looked at it, and the name of the church was Beezer in the Wilderness. That was the name of the church. <laughs> and that's the name of one of the cities of refuge. And so the people, whoever started this church, had, they named their church after a city of refuge. Because they wanted people to feel safe to come to them and to find that awesome mix, that beautiful mix of mercy and justice that the city of refuge really represented. Now, the cool thing about it is, is that our high priest, like the one that's around now, he's already dead. All good, everybody. <laughs> All right? And there's no other high priest, and there won't be. And so the year that the high priest died, all the sins were forgiven. We're wiped clean. Wiped clean. And so that's for you. And that's for me. Jesus represents, he is that high priest. And he represents that forgiveness, that cleansing, and that release of sin. There's no need for cities of refuge anymore. None. Because the high priest died and so there's a freedom and there's a liberty to that and so the reason that was given to the people they said okay don't defile the land through your murdering and all the rest of that kind of stuff here's the reason why this is the best part of this whole proclamation and this is a part we should really get not the I mean I mean really major on this the reason God said, don't defile the land, he's like, Cause I, here's what he said, because I live there too. <laughs> All right? I mean, did you ever live in an apartment with somebody that just didn't care? Or a house situation? Or somebody just didn't care, and they just left everything laying around, or they never did the dishes, or they didn't do their laundry, or their room stank, or they didn't wash their sheets? I mean, I lived with a guy like that my sophomore year of college. And, and there's just something about that that would drive me nuts. All right? Big pile of clothes. Big, huge pile of clothes. They would leave outside of his room. You know why he left them outside of his room? Because they smelled. But it wasn't outside of my room, all right? They stunk. That's why I left them outside of there. And you know what that dirty guy would do? He would pick clothes out of there to wear. Because you ran out of clothes eventually. Yeah. And what happens to your sheets when you never wash them? You know. Yeah, yeah. Nasty, right? And if you ever live with people like that, it's like that affects your quality of life. It just does. Especially if you're not doing dishes. That drives me nuts. It's like I, I need to use the dishes. I need to use those pans. Oh, they're not done. All right, well... I didn't cook in them, but I guess I'll wash them again. Why? Because I need to use them. It affects your quality of life. All right? So God gives his reason. 
And there's a reason we should all understand. He's like, don't defile the land. Why? Because I live there too. We should be able to understand that. Right? That's the reason. And he doesn't want to live in the filth. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. But whose filth is it? I mean, think about it. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to them. And so what they promptly do, instead of taking that upon themselves and saying, okay, let's clean up our lives, you know, like what he was trying to get them to do. Let's, let's get ourselves straightened out and stuff. You know what they did? They promptly blamed everybody else that was living in the land. Oh, it's these strangers' fault. That's why he's saying this. Let's kick them out. And let's persecute them and let's make them feel bad about themselves so that we can feel better about ourselves. That's exactly what they did. And so they just booted them out. It's like, that must be what he's talking about. Nope. No. No. He's talking to them. They're the problem. Not the strangers. Not the other people. It's them. They're the issue. It's them. And so he says, well, I live there too. You know why they call it the Holy Land over there? That's why. Because God declares he lives there too. All right, to them. And so from that time on, it was known as the Holy Land. Why? Because God said he lives there. Specifically. Specifically, that's why it's called that. Yeah. So, so he, was, he was telling them, he's like, okay, you're going to call this the Holy Land. Let's try not to make this a toilet. All right? <laughs> Since I live here too. I'm going to try to avoid this being a sewer, if possible. Thanks. So we should be able to understand that. And then he, he makes a proclamation. He, he said that he lives among them. And that makes me think of, when I hear that statement, he's living among his people, it makes me think of the tabernacle. You know, and they were numbers. They're, they're kind of, they're in that time frame of the tabernacle. All right? And the whole idea of the tabernacle, man, they said haul that thing around. They had a specific way that they would tear it down and set it up. It was mobile, and they could take it where they needed to go. And so they would go from one place, they'd set it up for a while, do their worship stuff and do everything, and God was there. I mean, you had the pillar, you had the cloud, and you had God that he would dwell in the tent. And so he would show himself that way. It was a peculiar thing. Their God moved with them, and he was leading them. By day and by night. Or they'd set up the tabernacle and he'd go and he'd dwell in there in a specific way. His glory would be manifest in this tabernacle. And so what he's saying here is that I, I, I live among you. And so what would happen, he was projecting out into when they took the promised land. And when they moved into the promised land, he said, I'm going to live there with you, among you. In what way? Like he dwells in the tabernacle. What does that mean? There's a particular glory that's going to rest with them throughout the land. That was what he was saying. And that's what he wanted them to understand, is that I'm going to live with you in a particular manner. I'm going to dwell among you. i got some Bible verses for you, and I'm going to need some help. I've got five Bible verses. got a little Bible rodeo going on. You ready? Let's ride it. All right, 2 Timothy 1.14, first one. Second one, Ephesians 2.22, 2 
I got Eric's attention, man. He looked up to see what the Bible rodeo was all about. Oh, no. Right here. Ephesians 3.17. Ephesians 3.17. Colossians 1.27. Eric. And 1 Corinthians 3.16. 2 Timothy 1.14, Ephesians 2.22, Ephesians 3.17, Colossians 1.27, and 1 Corinthians 3.16. Let's start with 2 Timothy 1.14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. All right, hang on, hang on, hang on. All right, get a little shift going in your head. Holy Land, Holy Land. Uh, where's the Spirit, where's he saying he's dwelling? Where's he dwelling now? In us. Holy land. Holy land. All right. All right. All right. So we're not talking about geographical region anymore. Although people still refer to it euphemistically as the holy land. The holy land really is in you, me, us. This is where God dwells. This is where God. What's that? We don't have to make a special trip. Not if you don't want to. Not if you don't want to. You can. A lot of history over there, a lot, of, a lot of stuff over there, but that's up to you, all right? But the real Holy Land is in you and me right now. This is where God dwells. This is where God dwells. All right, Ephesians 2.22. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here we are. So that's us. So we got me. God dwells in me. Then he's got, we got us. God dwells in us. And now understand again, this is a particular way that he chooses to dwell. Because I could say God's everywhere. Because he is. He's everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. And so there's a, a reality to him being omnipresent. He was omnipresent in the Old Testament. He's omnipresent now. But he chooses to dwell in a particular way that a lot of times we refer to as his glory. And so he reveals his glory in a particular fashion, in a particular way, in a particular place. In the Old Testament, it was at the tabernacle. And then it was in the land of Israel. Sometimes it was at the temple after it was built. And now, it's in us. Because that's what he chose to do. Ephesians 3.17. Thanks. You can read the rest of it if you want. Thanks. Yeah. Dwelling in our hearts or our innermost being richly richly you notice the, the words there by faith like you need to have you need to hold on to this somehow you need to hold on to it and you're going to hold on to it by faith i can make this as a statement of fact because it is but even a statement of fact if you don't believe it isn't going to matter too much until it matters and that's and that's just the way it is I can make a statement of fact to you about lots of stuff. 
and and it could be true. But if you don't choose to believe it, then you're not going to live in it. Yeah, we call that psychosis or, or neurosis. But people live that way. That even though there's certain things that are established, certain things that are facts, certain things that are, that's the way it is. People may choose not to believe it, and they live in their own reality. Okay. But you're missing. You're missing the truth. You're missing what God has said. You're missing his presence in a real way. You're missing his glory in and through your life because you're choosing just not to believe it. How about another verse? Colossians 1.27. Eric? <laughs> yes! <laughs> you are not. Good. All right, so Colossians is written to a bunch of people that weren't so sure about the Gentiles. Right? Remember we were talking about this earlier? That exclusive idea? Well, what Paul is saying is like, no, no. Uh, the presence of God in us is a mark on us. The presence of God in us is something that sets us apart. The, the presence of God in us is something that makes it real that we are all part of him and part of what he's doing and part of the life that he gives. I mean, it's a mark. It's a seal on us is that he dwells in us. Just like it was a seal on the children of Israel when he would appear in the tabernacle. Just like it was a seal on the children of Israel that he dwelled in the land with them. And there was a glory about that. There was a glory in that land, and there was a glory in that tabernacle, and there'd be a glory in that temple that would be built. Well, there's a glory in us, if you believe it. You know, you get, we, we can stand around our, the rest of our lives and just in, in, in no faith, just say, okay, God, show me your glory in no faith. I doubt you're going to see much. You say, God, show me your glory in even a mustard seed of faith. You're going to see something powerful. You're going to see something powerful in you and in me and in the midst of us. If you got a little bit of faith, just believe it. Just believe it. And that's so much better than just living in your own little made-up world. Yeah. Just a little nowhere video game world that you live in. I'm serious. It's not real, people. There's a reality that's so much better. Reality is so much better. There's glory in us, through us. So much better. In the midst of His people, when we gather together, so much better, so much better. 1 Corinthians 3.16 All right, so I've hit all of the dwelling places of God in the Old Testament through New Testament verses. Did you catch it? You catch all them? Yeah. So and where did it all end up? In us. That's where it ended up. All them places in the Old Testament. It's like, yeah, well, 
he, he dwelled there, or that was his, you know, whatever. It's in us. He's in us. And that's the power of God in us. That's the glory of God in us. That's the presence of God in us. And as I said before, God desires a beautiful balance in us. And there is a beautiful balance. The beautiful balance is the same beautiful balance as in the city of refuge. And that beautiful balance was a balance of justice and mercy. And the justice part for us is really understanding how that's taken place. It's really understanding that, that Jesus has provided the justice. In other words, there, were, there was a law that was going to be fulfilled. We were sowing and sowing and sowing into sin, and we were sowing into whatever we were doing, into selfishness and pride, and sowing into all this stuff that, that was just no good. And somebody was going to reap that. That's the justice. There's a reaping to a sowing. That's justice. But Jesus stepped in between us and what was sown, and he reaped all of that that we were going to reap. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. But we've got to recognize that. We've got to know that. We've got to appreciate that. We have to see that. That's something that we need to be aware of and something that needs to mean something to us. Because the other side of it is that, that beautiful mercy that God is showing. That's the other side. That as Jesus reaps what we've sown, we're just flooded with mercy and grace in our life. And, that, and that's the beautiful thing. That's the beautiful balance that we live in now. Is that justice is served. We just have a Savior. Justice is fulfilled. We just have a Savior. And you know what? You need to love Him. I need to love Him. You need to appreciate that. I need to appreciate that. There's been people in my life that have sacrificed, and they sacrificed so that I could have a better life. The generations of people who came before me that sacrificed so that the generations after them could have a better life. And I know that because I, I look back at where I come from. I mean, literally, to the places that I came from. And there's people still living in the cycles in those places where I came from. And as I look back and I see the people that laid down their lives and laid down their dreams, some of them, and laid down their, their ambitions, some of them, in order to provide and provide a way out for those that would come after them, I have to appreciate that. I can't just look back and say, yeah, whatever, suckers. Because they weren't. They were mindful and they were giving and they were sacrificial and they did what needed to be done. It provided a route for me to get out. And I did. And I ran as fast and as far away as I could. I did. And I want to encourage you that people that have sacrificed and given, some of you have those kind of people in your life, appreciate it. Recognize it and appreciate it. Honor it. Jesus is someone all of us should honor. 
When? Right now. When? Just then, right now. When? Just then, right now, and in a moment. Keep honoring him. Just keep honoring him. Keep loving him. Keep appreciating. Keep understanding what he's done. See, that's the justice piece in our lives. It's Jesus. And I want to tell you something, and this is going to sound really harsh, but every time you try to justify yourself, Every time you try to be holy enough or righteous enough on your own, every time that you pretend that you're all that good and all those other people are bad, you dishonor what he's done. That's harsh, right? That's the truth. There is no need to ever do that. And it is a lack of understanding to continue in that behavior. It is pure ignorance. It's all been done. And we need to honor him for what he's done. We need to love him. We need to recognize. And we need to continue in that frame of mind. In that heart. In that spirit toward him. Because that's how we stand. And that's the only way we stand. Because you know what? You're going to mess up. I'm telling you. And if you're standing in your own righteousness, you're going to stand for a very short amount of time. And then you're going to cycle into some weird depression or whatever it is you go through. Self-condemnation, self-ugliness, or whatever it is. And you will fall back into that. Why? Because you're standing on shifting sands. You're standing on a ground that can't hold you. Because you're unable to live up to the standard that is real and that really exists. Well, I get that. And I honor the one who did live up to it. I honor the one who has paid the price. And I honor the one that has offered life to me and has given for me that I might live. And I'm going to keep honoring him. I'm going to keep going. And I want to encourage you to that place. Because that's some beautiful justice. That's some beautiful justice for us. To actually live in. In gratitude. And in honor. It really is. A recognition of all that he's done. I can talk about mercy and grace. Because that's what it is. But without the justice side of it. I don't know that we really understand all the mercy and grace completely. So I encourage you to let that balance become real in your heart and let that balance become life to you. Yeah? Have you found in your experience that people with a strong sense of justice struggle with that? Yeah, because they're looking for some kind of recompense. Mm -hmm. But I think if they can get a hold of what Jesus actually went through, I think that that satisfies it. Yeah, because somebody had to pay the price. If you really believe that he paid the price, it'll satisfy it. Because some of us have a really strong sense of justice. We just do. And somebody needs to pay for it. And he did. He did. But it's really taking that to heart and really understanding us that sets us free.
That's what sets us free. <coughs> he makes a statement. He says, I am the Lord. <coughs> and I want to say that what that says to me, and the way I understand that statement, I am the Lord, is that living in, in the way that God calls us to live isn't a matter of convenience. And, and don't ever believe that. That's a real lie. That's like a devil lie. That if you believe that serving him and living the way that he's called you to live is a matter of convenience for you, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. And if, you, if you're bent toward doing the convenient thing, you're going to be fairly useless in the kingdom. It's not convenient. It is not convenient to serve him. It's not convenient to live for him. It's not convenient to, to be the people that he's called us to be. It's just not. It never was. It never will be. It's not part of the equation. And just because we may want it to be part of the equation doesn't mean that it is. We may want lots of stuff that's not real or true. And, and maybe I'm going back to the discussion about psychosis or neurosis, but it doesn't mean it has to be just because you want it. And we've got to get over that. Reality is awesome. Reality is awesome. It's just not convenient all the time. Reality is important. It just doesn't go our way the way we want it to all the time. But I'd much rather live in reality and have things not go my way all the time and be real than just live my life making stuff up. Because that doesn't make any sense. If you make stuff up long enough, let me tell you something. It will destroy you. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy the people around you. And it needs to stop. And so, in the land, I go back to first things first, what God was talking about to these people. He's talking about murder, and he's talking about cities of refuge, and he's talking about a process that people need to go through, and he's talking about people leaving their homes and their lands and their farms and their money and everything that they had, and they would run to these cities of refuge, and they would have to change their address and live there. Even if they were not guilty, they'd still have to live there till the high priest died. And that meant leaving behind their former life in order to do that. That's not convenient. It's not. But in the interest of the land being orderly, in the interest of the land being free from bloodshed, being free from people in crime and people killing each other, in the interest of those things, there's going to be a little bit of inconvenience. Or a whole lot of inconvenience, actually. But that's just the way it is. Why? Because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. Somebody read Genesis 4.10. Listen, 
Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Who's he talking to there? Cain. He killed Abel. Cain had killed Abel in a fit of something. And God went to confront him. And what's interesting about it, and I, I think it's super interesting, he said, listen, he said, I, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. He declared other place in, in the Old Testament, in, or he declared other place in the scriptures, he said that the life is in the blood. And that's why he had required blood sacrifices. Because he determined and he said, he declared that the life would be in the blood. And so when Cain had killed Abel, the proof that he brought to Cain to, in order to accuse him, in order to ask him, like, well, what have you done? The proof of it was, is that I can hear your brother's blood crying out from the ground. The very life of him was spilled onto the ground, crying out to his maker. There's a couple of verses I want to contrast with that, compare with that. Matthew 23, 35. Matthew twenty three thirty five. All right, Jesus is speaking there, and he's speaking to the religious leaders. And he made a declaration over them. He said, this is your guilt. You hear this? This is your guilt. This is what shall come upon you because of your judgments. He said, from the, the blood of Abel to Zechariah, who they killed on his way up to the altar. This is your guilt. That's a pretty powerful statement that Jesus made to the religious leaders. You hear that? The spiritual leaders of Israel. That was his statement to them. This was their guilt. They didn't want to hear that. They did not want to hear that. They didn't want to hear they were guilty of anything. And if you look at the stories that Jesus told about them, like the, he told a story about two men went up to pray, and he had one guy that was a sinner, and he was crying and wailing and beating his chest because he, he was uh, racked by such guilt over his life. And then you had the other guy, the religious leader, the Pharisee that was there, and, he, and his prayer was, God, I thank you that I'm not like this other man over here, this sinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right? There's a problem there. Because he thought he was all good. But the reality of it was that all the blood... And what do we know blood does? 
cries out to God. Cries out. Or on the religious leaders of the day. Crying out. Okay, another verse. Revelation 6.10. Okay, who's speaking there? Just read up a little bit. You'll see. The souls of all those who have been slain for the word of God. Right. These are the martyrs. These are the martyrs. Read it again what they say. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? All right. So again... We hear a crying out. A crying out, a crying out, and a crying out. This is what defiles the land. That's what it does. We have a solution for this. We do. We dwell in the solution for this. The solution is in the person of Jesus. The solution is that the high priest has died. The solution is that the sins, though they be many, or though they be scarlet, though they be terrible, awful things, have been wiped out and forgiven. Because the high priest has died. Now our high priest rose again. But once he died, he died, that was it, it's done. And there's been no high priest since. And so to understand what this means to us, it means that there's a beautiful balance between justice and mercy. And we live right in the middle of it. In one sense, we need, we need to take hold of what that justice looks like in the person of Jesus so that we can take hold of the mercy that he offers. He responds, and he continues to respond to the crying out. He responded on the cross to the crying out. And he continues to respond to that in and through our lives every single day. Every day that he reaps that which we sow, he responds. Every day that he offers cleansing and forgiveness in life and we receive that in faith, he responds. And he continues to respond in our life. And that's the beautiful thing. It's an ongoing, dynamic relationship with him if you choose to live in faith. You don't want to live in faith? You want to hate yourself? It's your prerogative. It's your prerogative. I mean, nobody can make you apply a mustard seed of faith to the truth of Jesus. Can't. 
Nobody can make you apply a mustard seed of faith to the work that he's done in reaping what you sowed. Can't do it. But he still did it and he offers you forgiveness and cleansing today. Nobody can make you accept that his mercy is offered so big, his grace is offered so big in your life right now because of all that he's done and the justice that he has purchased through his death, his atoning work, his reaping what you've sown. Nobody can make you believe that, but man, he offers you some freedom right now if you would. No one can make you believe that he, he wants to dwell in you with a, with a particular glory. He wants to dwell in us as a people with a particular glory. But man, life is so much better if you do. It really is. So much better just to believe him for what he said. In a particular way, he wants to dwell in us. A glorious way he wants to dwell in us. We have to believe it. We have to apply a little bit of faith to this. And so I want to encourage you toward that tonight. I'm going to take a few moments to respond. And as we do, I, I want to encourage you just to apply a little bit of faith. Just a little. Whatever you can muster up. A little bit of faith. See what God might do. Father, thanks for... Uh, the life that you offer tonight. And I just want to take a moment and rebuke shame over people. I want to rebuke feelings of guilt. I want to rebuke remorse in the name of Jesus. I want to rebuke the lies of the enemy that really are over people tonight keeping them from entering into the fullness that you have for them. I pray, Father, that you begin to set us free, that you set us free tonight to apply a little bit of faith to the work that you've done. We talk about it. We talk about, oh, Jesus, the atoning work. Amen, brother. Well, what does that really mean? That really means something. It's not just words. That really means something. That Jesus is reaping that which we have sown. Why? Because he wants to. Because he chooses to. He willingly does it. Whatever that costs him, he's willing to pay the price in order to reap what we've sown. Why? That we can live in mercy and grace. I just pray, God, that you teach us what it is to be appreciative and to be thankful and to be grateful, to be respectful of what you've done. Now, then, and in the future. For God, I thank you that you desire to dwell in your people in a particular fashion. And the obstacles for you dwelling in us have been removed. And here we are, vessels, vessels of your glory, vessels of your power, vessels of your mercy, your grace, vessels of your love. 
Let me say, Phyllis, God, have your way. Phyllis, God, have your way. And those stupid lies that have kept us from receiving all that you want to pour into us, I pray they just fall by the wayside right now and just be done. Just be done. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, just receive. Make a couple declarations in your own heart, your own mind right now. Just a couple things that really need to be declared. Just make your declarations. Say what needs to be said. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We honor you, Jesus. We honor you. We show you and we ascribe to you the respect and the honor that's due you. Thanks for your mercy and thanks for your grace. We give you honor and praise tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. Okay. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. We're super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Well, yeah, see, a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.